Obviously, we are grateful to know that the church is about more than what happens within these four walls of the church. The reality is there are people all around the world that need Jesus, and we have the opportunity to be involved with that. I do want to dismiss the children. If you have any kids that want to go to children's church, I see Hannah over to my left and your right, and I know that she would love to have kids. Actually, I saw some sneak out during the video, which is good too, but uh, it is great to know that God has given us such a great calling and opportunity to serve. I was reading this week that um, within uh, just a few, actually, I think it was two decades, it is anticipated that Christianity will be a minority religion in the United States. And that is primarily because of the population growth that has taken place alongside the fact that the church has been in many ways falling. And it is time for us to do something about that. It is time for the body of Christ to rise up and be the church that God called us to be. What does a healthy business look like? I asked that question to a business owner this week, and his response was threefold. He said, first, the business needed to be profitable. This makes sense as it's hard to maintain a business if you're not making money somewhere along the way. Second, he said, the business needs to have the potential for long-term viability. In other words, it's not enough for a business to be successful for a short time if there is not the potential for long-lasting success. And finally, he added that the business needed to be something that genuinely met a need within the community. This last statement is reflective of the fact that the business owner I was dealing with is approaching his business from a Christian perspective. But it's also good business. If you're helping people improve their lives, then they're likely to keep your business going for a long time. They're going to support it. They're going to want to be a part of it. Now, let me turn that question around. What does a healthy church look like? This is a little bit different type of question. Since we exist not primarily as a business, for example, we would never use the term profitable, but we might talk about financial stability. And financial stability is very wise within a church, but it's likely not the first thing that we'll talk about. But meeting needs and long-term viability, we don't necessarily mind those things. So what does a healthy church look like? If you talk to a dozen church experts, you're likely to get somewhere around a dozen answers. And in a manner, all of those answers will be correct. They may note a strong mission ministry, an outreach-oriented church, an intergenerational congregation, or good communication. Or maybe they'll talk about numbers or the types of ministry that are provided, like a strong youth ministry or children's ministry. And all of these things are correct. They're a part of a healthy church. But what if a healthy church is about much more than those things? I suggest to you that the best way to identify a healthy church is to go back to where it all began. Where did the church begin? In a manner, it began all the way back in Genesis when God called Abraham and his people to serve as God's chosen people. He set them apart for himself. 
That's why many converted Jews today will not refer to themselves as converted, but rather as completed. What we see happening in the New Testament is merely a completion of what started back in Genesis. But generally, when we speak of the birth of the church, our first thoughts go back to the day of Pentecost. It's a day that we've talked about recently here at church. As the Holy Spirit showed up and tongues of fire rested upon all those who were present. And they spoke in tongues which everyone could somehow understand regardless of where they came from and what language they spoke themselves. On that day, thousands of people would respond to the convicting sermon that is presented by Peter and the other disciples. And it becomes clear that God is doing a new thing. Well, since this was a new thing, they didn't have somebody to tell them, well, this is the way we've always done things around here. And as a result, what happened seemed very organic. It was not forced. It was just people doing what needed to be done. I wonder sometimes if we have made church about an awful lot of things and perhaps what we really need to do is to simply get back to the basics of what church is supposed to be like. Today I want to begin a new series on the passion and the purpose of a New Testament church And I want us to begin in a familiar place. Our text today is in Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 42 through 47. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to that passage. I've been talking about the day of Pentecost and the great events that took place that day. But what happens next? Do they just go about their lives acting as if nothing has changed? Do they splinter off in different directions with Some new leaders pointing in one direction and other new leaders coming along and saying, no, we need to go this way instead. Thankfully, the answer to that question is no. Look with me at our passage, Acts 2, beginning in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Within these verses, we see the things that mattered most within the New Testament church. And I would simply add that if these things are kept as a priority within the church today, then great things will still happen. The first thing that we see is not coincidentally about sound doctrine. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I was reading recently from 1 Timothy, and I couldn't help but notice that so much of what Paul writes to Timothy is about sound doctrine. He wants to make sure that misconceptions are addressed, that incorrect, non-biblical teaching is corrected. In fact, the same could likely be said of most of the letters that are written by both Paul and Peter. 
There were always those who wanted to share their own opinions or they wanted to lead the church more heavily in a different direction. It may have been Jews being unrealistic toward Gentile believers, often involving a lack of grace. Or it may have been churches allowing different forms of sexual immorality, often involving a lack of law. At times, it may have been something completely out of line with what Jesus and the Old Testament scriptures had already taught. So it was important that the foundation of the church be based on sound doctrine. That is the preaching of the word. In his book, Know the Truth, there's an author named Bruce Milne. And he begins with a question and then builds everything else upon the answer to this question. Why is the study of Christian doctrine so vital? He then shares four simple answers, and I want to share those with you this morning. First, he said that it's so important because every Christian is a theologian. Now, maybe you've never seen yourself in this capacity. You think of a college professor, or maybe you think of the pastor as a theologian. But the truth is that every Christian is a theologian. The term theology literally means the study of God or the knowledge of God, which emerges from an acquaintance with God, brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit and instructed by the pages of our scripture. In fact, listen to this. It is impossible to be a believer, to be a Christian without being someone who has a knowledge of God and who recognizes that knowledge of God is something which is to be growing all the time. In other words, if you are a believer, you need to know who God is to do that, and then you ought to constantly be seeking to know him even more. It is to be deepened as a result of the study of Christian doctrine. That's the first reason why it's important that we have sound doctrine. Now, I know that we're talking about a healthy church here today, but I want to pause and note that a healthy believer, not just a healthy church, but a healthy believer will always be focused on Christian doctrine. We've done a bit of a disservice when we teach people that you can be a believer and somehow you have already reached the pinnacle of your faith. The truth is we ought to always be seeking to know the truth of God more than we did already, regardless of how long we've been Christians. I heard someone say recently, I so much agree with this statement, that if your faith story is only what you talk about as having happened years back in your past, something is wrong. Your faith story ought to always be growing. You ought to be becoming more and more like Jesus Christ every day. I celebrate when we look back and say, well, you know, it was 25 years ago that I had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. I celebrate that. What have you done with him since then? Was it just an encounter? You passed by and you saw each other on the road. You shook hands. Hey, it's nice to meet you. And you kept going and you never talked to him again. I've had those encounters. I met Dabo Sweeney one day. I did. It was at the Daniel High School football game. Walked up to him, introduced myself. He said, nice to meet you. And I'm sure he has no clue who I am today. 
because I hadn't talked to him since then. How many of us have done the same thing with God? Where God has introduced himself to us, yet for whatever reason, we have allowed our faith to fall by the wayside. Second thing that Milne says, he says it is vital because getting doctrine right is the key to getting everything else right. If you want to know how we should worship, you'll find the answer in the knowledge of the scriptures and understanding Christian doctrine. If you want to know how to, you want to understand how to be a good witness, the answer is found in the knowledge of the scriptures. How to conduct myself at work or to conduct myself at home, how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, how to nurture Christian relationships. The answer to all of these questions emerges from a study of the scriptures. Stop trying to figure everything out on your own. You've got the answer sitting in front of you in God's word. And I'm not just talking about a head knowledge. At some point, what is going on up here mentally also needs to be transferred to the very essence of our lives, to our hearts. We need to get past being able to say, I can quote various scriptures. It needs to affect who we are. Nevertheless, we cannot get anything right until we get the doctrine right. In fact, this leads to the third reason why studying Christian doctrine is so important. Melanie says that a study of Christian doctrine is an expression of loving God with our minds. Remember, Jesus says in response to the Pharisees' question of what is the greatest commandment, he says, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. What does it mean to love God with all your mind? How can a person love God with all their mind? The answer is in getting serious about God's word and getting serious about the truth and getting serious about the knowledge of who God is. Finally, Milne says that doctrine is vital because it is impossible to separate Christ from the truth that scripture reveals concerning him. In other words, it is through the word of God that we get to know what Jesus is all about. In fact, the gospel of John in the Gospel of John, Jesus is even referred to as the Word. And it could be argued that all of Scripture is the telling of His story. Do you want to know who Jesus is? Do you want to know what He loves? Do you want to know what is most important to Him? It's in His Word. Pick up your Bible and read it. So it should not surprise us that Luke describes the New Testament church and he begins with his, their focus on the apostles' teaching. We're talking about sound doctrine. And where does their sound doctrine come from? First, it would have come from their personal experience with Jesus. Remember when Peter and John, when they went to the temple and they healed a man, and because they did so in the name of Jesus, they're brought before the religious ruling council. Do you remember the description that is given of Peter and John? They're referred to as unschooled, ordinary men, but they had been with Jesus. So what do you think they taught about? More than likely, they taught about what they had seen and heard from Jesus. 
But I will also add that they taught as the Spirit led them. The role of the Holy Spirit was to remind them of the things which Jesus had already said. He gave them words to speak, and they proclaimed Christ crucified and resurrected to an unbelieving world. But we're not just talking about the disciples. So often we imagine the disciples as being filled with the Holy Spirit, but it's not just the disciples, especially on this day of Pentecost. These new believers are filled with the Spirit and are naturally hungry for the Word. They're devoted to it. In fact, it appears that the first evidence of the Spirit's presence, even on the day of Pentecost, is a devotion to the apostles' teaching. So we find that the church becomes almost an impromptu Bible school with about 3,000 students in this Bible school. And the teachers are none other than the apostles themselves. And they set about understanding what God is saying, starting with the Old Testament all the way up until that very moment in time. This is the model that should exist even in the church today. When the Spirit is present in our lives, then there ought to be a hunger for the Word of God in our lives. This is true of healthy Christians and healthy churches. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They also devoted themselves to the presence of the Lord. Now, I would actually include two elements that are listed in this passage as being a part of the presence of the Lord. The first is fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship, the gathering together of God's people. This would be incredible, incredibly valuable for different reasons. On the one hand, they have common experiences that they can work through together. Among this first group of believers, it is likely that almost everyone, if not all of them, were from a Jewish background. The very moment that they begin to follow Jesus, they would likely have been ostracized by the very same people who had persecuted Jesus. And guess what? Some of those people we might refer to as family. It sure would be nice to not have to go through this alone. Even more than that, they also are experiencing some pretty exciting things too. We'll get to it in a moment, but the power of God was very real in that New Testament church. And it's likely that each of them had had their own experiences that they would like to share with each other. That would be like me going out and hitting a hole in one and not being able to share it with anybody else or not having anyone to confirm what had happened. And y'all would all be sitting there saying, sure, I'm, I bet you hit a hole in one. I'm experiencing something great, but either nobody thinks or everybody thinks I'm crazy or you just think I'm full of myself. Fellowship would create an avenue to share with others what God was doing in them. God moves in your life. God does something and sets you free from something. God takes care of something that you never even imagined possible. Isn't it great to be able to share that with the body of Christ? Fellowship is not always about picking each other up when we're down, although that may be a part of it. A part of it, it, it gives us an avenue for celebration. It's what family, a church family, is supposed to do. 
Fellowship among the body of Christ is about something far greater, though. It was in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, where we read from Jesus, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. In other words, as the people gather in fellowship, seeking the Lord, the Lord shows up and reveals himself to them. So now we're not just talking about the presence of other people. We're talking about the presence of God. In fact, this leads to the second part of presence. The presence of God is also experienced in the act of breaking bread. We call it communion at Trinity. Some will refer to it as the Lord's Supper. Others will refer to it as the Eucharist. But it's still the breaking of bread. In the New Testament understanding of breaking bread, this was about much more than just sharing a meal together, although we are really good at that. We like to eat. Instead, in their situation, it was about remembering Christ. In fact, I know most of you probably already know this, but let me take you back to where that originated. As Jesus was preparing for the cross, he gathered for a meal with his disciples and in Matthew 26, we read that while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus then instructs his disciples that every time they eat this, every time they drink this, they are to do this in remembrance of me. So when they broke bread together, the real purpose was to reflect on what Jesus had done for them, his sacrifice. He allowed his body to be broken, his blood to be shed, to pay for our sins. There aren't many people who would do that. You know, Jesus never calls us to remember his birth, yet we spend so much money and effort on remembering the birth of Jesus. But he did call us to remember his body that was broken and his blood that was shed. I will tell you there's a difference in the way communion is perceived in Catholic circles as opposed to Protestant circles. In Catholic theology, the bread literally transforms into the body of Jesus, and the wine literally transforms into the blood of Jesus. It's called transubstantiation, a big word, doesn't really matter a whole lot to us, but the point is they believe that everything physically changes, and in that manner, what happens is the body of Christ and the blood of Christ is present. In Protestant theology, the body and blood serve as representations of the reminders of the body and blood. So when we eat the bread, it's bread, but it represents something else. When we drink the wine or the grape juice, it, it is still wine or grape juice, but it represents something far more valuable. The point is that within the act of communion, regardless of which way you're doing it, our attention is brought back to Jesus Christ. The next thing that we see that the church was fully devoted to was prayer. What that tells me is it wasn't just an add-on to what they did. It was a part of who they were. 
And again, this wasn't just the apostles who prayed, although I'm sure they let the apostles pray publicly as well. I remember several years ago, I had a young lady from my church who stopped by to ask me to pray for a specific need. Biblically, we are told to call upon the elders of the church to pray. So that was a wise decision. But what she said indicated a popular misconception even within the church. She said she wanted, to pr- she wanted me to pray because she figured God was more likely to respond to me than to her. I guess the idea was that when God saw my name on the caller ID, that he'd be more likely to answer. But the truth is, we all have access to the Lord through prayer. It's not only the pastor, it's not only the missionary, it's not only your grandma, it's not only the Sunday school teacher. Every one of us can come before the Lord in prayer. There's a beautiful image that took place at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We are told that there was an area of the temple that was off limits. It was basically the place that only the priests could go. And there was a veil that separated the rest of the commoners from that area of the temple. But at the moment that Christ was crucified, we are told that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. I remember talking with a a nun. She was from a Catholic, uh, uh, it's not a monastery. What's it called? uh, Convent, that's the word, thank you. She was from a Catholic convent in Pennsylvania and she was asking, what makes me think that anybody can go before the Lord? And I took her back to this passage and I said, when that veil of the temple was torn, at that moment, At that moment, more than the priests had access to the Lord, but rather that was the Lord opening up access to all those who would believe in him. I loved her response because it was genuine and it was true. She said, I have read the scriptures so many times and I have never seen that passage in my life. The reality is every one of us has access to the Lord in prayer. Among the New Testament believers, they devoted themselves to prayer. And what did they pray for? We know that they prayed for one another. It was Max Lucado who said, you are never more like Jesus than when you pray for others. Pray for this hurting world. And he would be correct. Jesus prayed for us. At times he prayed for peace. At times he prayed for wisdom. He prayed for strength. He prayed for unity. At times he prayed for healing. And the call to prayer is one that is echoed throughout the New Testament. In Colossians 4.2, Paul calls upon the church to devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And in Galatians 6.2, he says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. What's the point? They prayed for each other, and we should too. In fact, James 5.16 says that we should confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. But they prayed for other people too. It wasn't just for their healing. They prayed for other people too. Matthew 5.44 
In that passage, Jesus instructed his followers to love your enemies and even pray for those who persecute you. In fact, to take it a step further, Paul instructs 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Paul says to Timothy, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So let me ask you, who are you praying for? I had a friend who shared with me that she had been praying for a coworker. It was one of those coworkers that nobody wants to have. And she admitted that she began by praying that God would remove her coworker from their work environment. Any of you ever prayed that way? <laughs> Before long, her prayers began to change, though. She was praying that God would change the individual. And then one day she realized that it wasn't just the other individual who needed to be changed. God was using this lady's prayer time to change her own heart toward the individual. Eventually, she would share with me that she now loved her coworker, and she prayed completely different than the way she started. I wonder what would happen if we simply began praying for the people in our lives, not trying to fix all that is broken, all that they've done wrong, all the things that are, look like a train wreck in their lives. Instead of trying to fix them, what if we began praying for them, not making our list of all the things that they had done wrong, all the things that we hate about them, not simply trying to avoid them, just praying for them. Maybe God will change them, or maybe God will change us. There's one more thing that I want you to see this morning. But this one is a little bit different from the first three. Yes, the New Testament church was devoted to the preaching of the word, to the presence of each other and the presence of the Lord. And they were devoted to prayer. But we cannot ignore the fact that in the midst of these things, we also see the power of God constantly at work in their midst. In verse 43, it says that everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. The people did more than just hear the truth. They saw the truth. It's the same thing that happened even during Jesus' earthly ministry. Crowds followed Jesus everywhere he went, and certainly many of them came because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law according to Matthew 7, 29. But the reality is that many likely came out to see him because they were more interested in what he could do. Or maybe they came out simply because of curiosity. But when they saw the power of God, they couldn't help but believe. Do you remember the story of Lazarus? Having been raised from the dead, he became a living testimony of the power of 
of Jesus Christ. So listen to the words of John 12, verses 9 through 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. When people saw that the power of God was real, they believed. The same thing happens in the New Testament church. Signs and wonders are being performed and people are being healed. The lame are walking and even the dead are being raised. Now, maybe this seems secondary to you or me, maybe even a little bit unimportant. But I want to suggest to you that the presence of the power of God to change lives is not secondary. It is absolutely necessary. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is warning the church about what is to come. And he talks about those who will have a form of godliness, yet deny its power. I'm going to tell you that if the word is faithfully preached... If the spirit of the Lord is present, and if God's people will faithfully pray, then we will see the power of God to transform lives. Maybe that will be through physical healings like what we see in the New Testament church. I will tell you, I've seen physical healings, and I do believe that the same God who healed back then is able to physically heal today. Or maybe it will be through a transformed life, like we see in the woman who had been caught in adultery. This woman was instructed to go and to sin no more. It is assumed that when she left that day, she became a living testimony to the transforming work that Christ could do in her life. Maybe it will be through the testimony of one who has found hope and grace like the woman at the well who went back and told everybody, I have found a man who knew everything about me and they believed because of what they heard from her. But later they would declare, now we believe because we have experienced it ourselves. I don't know what God needs to do in your life today. But I know that God can do it. And I believe that as we become the church that God intends for us to be, that we will see more and more of the transforming, redeeming, and healing power of God in our midst. We're not going to be talking about, you remember when God did, and looking at it as a history event, but rather this is what God is doing now. Do you want to be a part of a New Testament church like that? I do. So you have two options. Either you can leave and go find one. (laughs) Hopefully none of you say, that's what I'm doing. Or you can be a part of this church and help us to become the church that God intended us to be. And hopefully all of you will say, amen. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we are grateful for what we see in that New Testament church a people that were fully devoted to you, that were eager 
to be with the body of Christ and eager to even be in the presence of the Lord, that we're eager to go before you in prayer. And as a result of all of those things coming together, they also experience the power of God. But I pray today that we would experience the power of God today just like they did. Reveal yourself to us. Allow your presence to be something that is very real to every individual here. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful in presenting the word, and I pray that you'd help us to be faithful in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would move in such a way that this church would become an incredible, an incredible ambassador to this community. Lord, help us to show the world that the transforming, healing power of God is just as real today as it was 2,000 years ago. Allow us to be your transformed vessels. Lord, we pray for the church, but Lord, I pray today for the individual. If there be one here today, that maybe all this stuff sounds like a history lesson. Maybe it all sounds like theory, something that's beyond our reach. Lord, I, right now I pray that you would pour out your spirit on us and make this real today. Transform us. Heal us. And we'll give you praise for what you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is such a blessing to be with you. I am so excited about this series as we're going to be looking at what the church is supposed to look like. When we talk about the New Testament church, we look at growth, we look at healing, we look at a church that was alive. And I want us to be that way. So I hope you're as excited about it as I am. It's a blessing to have each of you. I do encourage you to stick around for Sunday school if you'd like. If not... Uh, come back and see us at some point before next Sunday. If not, we'll see you on Sunday. Thank you.